Hi, welcome to Cartwheels on the Sky, Poets, Poems, and Discovery. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and this Saturday night, for the next 30 minutes, you're going to get a glimpse into the poems and process of elk poet Thomas Roberdeau. Before I share our conversation, I want you to know a little bit about Thomas. Thomas Robodeau is a filmmaker and writer living in Elk, California, and he's been on the Mendocino Coast on and off since the late 1970s. He was educated at the University of Texas at Austin. His work in film has been primarily seen on the History Channel and on PBS. His films and screenplays have won several prestigious awards. He's a teacher who's taught at many North Coast schools in Santa Monica, as well as with California poets in the schools, and he has lectured on film at various universities. He currently teaches with San Francisco Art and Film, a private school in the Bay Area. He has won several grants, including one in film from the National Endowment for the Arts and a teaching grant from the California Arts Council. He has published a book with Sun Moon Press in Los Angeles and a variety of poems and stories with every literary journal on the North Coast. Here is a conversation we had earlier this week. Thomas, it's wonderful to have you here with me on Cartwheels on the Sky. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for asking. Do you want to start us off with one of your poems? Yeah, I, I would. I would. I, uh, I'll read this one. about. This is called The Assassination. Quiet as a storm ending, steady and calm, the city sifts in repose. Dallas, Dealey Plaza, where the marks of the tourist gun sites point to the same window in the same book depository building and the same grassy knoll. Dealey Plaza is a valley. It is the perfect ambush of containment. It is the century's greatest puzzle to solve. If Houdini were here, could he figure it out? Would he place himself in chains and ride atop the limousine next to the dark-haired lady dressed in pink roses? When the bullets of conspiracy hit him, would Houdini spit them out and emerge from the impact, smiling seawater and ice? The smile of JFK was an evangelical dream. It was his halo that they aimed for. Mm. Thank you for that. Such a, um, we'll leave that one in. Huh? It, there's so much to say, and at the same time, it says so much on its own, and we can all just sit with that. Yeah, Thank thanks. You. Thank you. So let's talk a bit about you and who you are and how you became a poet and where poetry expresses itself in your life. Well, I, I I never thought I would write anything, really. I, I started out writing uh, movie treatments and started out as a news cameraman, frankly, and then I had to write some responses to the news that I would shoot for for a uh, broadcast. And then then when I, whenever I would write a, an idea for a movie, people always liked the writing a lot, but I didn't take it seriously at all, frankly. And then I, uh, for years, worked in television and film as a, as a cameraman and as also as a director and did a lot of educational movies that got some attention. And I would have to, I'd be hired by little companies to come up with an idea again. I'd write a little script, and everybody always liked the writing, but I, I just didn't take it seriously. And then 
so after a bunch of years, I decided to to uh, dive into writing, and I, I started doing it actually on a on a kind of a road trip. And I was in Colorado, and there was some. I uh, was going through this town, and there was a a bar, and there was like a little sign that says poetry reading, and I had been keeping a little bit of a journal in my travels, so I read something, and people liked it, and, you know, I, I, I had never been in front of people like that either. I'd been an actor, so I was used to being in front of people, but I'd never stood in front of people with a piece of paper or to read something that I wrote. Something but original, right? So different? Yeah. Yeah, it was so weird, and I, and I was nervous about it, even though I trained as a performer. I was nervous as hell standing in front of people, and so I was uh, doing that. So then I came around here and ended up living in Northern California for a while where the poetry world was so vibrant and I started to write a lot of it and I met a few people that became friends um, and I would read their their stuff, they'd read mine and I'd, and I'd go to these uh, little readings and and I, I never enjoyed reading poetry, I only liked, I guess I... I took the tension in, in my body, and I liked performing it, so I would do these wild things. I'd write, like, little novellas, and I'd read those. I'd reenact them. I'd uh, I'd use the poetry readings as almost like a, like a, like a performance art, in a way. And I, I started to dive into shamanism at the same time and, you know, was trying to make a link between poetry and that, and... And I would see people read poetry that were really inspiring, the way they did it, the way they used language, the way they used their bodies. I remember watching Edward Dorn do it one time, and Allen Ginsberg inspired me, Jack Hirschman did these People, I would see them, Robert Bly, people I would see them in uh, live. And so I saw the possibilities of poetry that way. And then I dove more into it and read everything and fell in love with these, some of these great, American poets of the last uh, century, really, um, like like Ed Dorn and like Charles Olson, especially, and um, Lou Welch, people like that. And I, living up in Northern California, I guess I really got hooked on it. So I started to write a lot of it and perform it and do it. And then um, started to write all sorts of other things as well. So I, uh, so I liked it a lot, and it, ma- it mattered a lot to me, and I... I would always uh, dive into it, and and I read it all the time, and you know, and I I enjoy it, and I I also write short stories, and I've got a bunch of novels that have never been published, and <laughs> most most of the stuff I've I've had a few things that have been published, a few stories, but but um, that's kind of how I got into the writing. You no, know, I, I I kind of became self-educated in a way. I never. I never went to write. I never had a writing class, and didn't do any of that at university. I was only focused on filmmaking and, you know, history at university. So mm-hmm. I, um, I just sort of dive into, dove into it, and tried to do it. And but the, the being in Northern California, it really because people were so responsive, responsive to that and to fiction and, and things, it really helped me kind of define myself that I. If I could write this stuff and people could read it and they were enjoying it, well, that was a that was there was a great value in that, and I I um, you know stayed stayed with it all these years because of that, and 
And uh, even if I'm even if I'm doing another writing project, I I'll sometimes write write poems, and I'll I'll use poems in a way like people use journals. I guess I don't like I write a little bit about myself, but not that much. I just will write something about what's going on, or if I'm angry about something, I might put it in a poem or whatever. Right. So I'm sure that's pretty common for people that write. Yeah. Do you write, do you ever write down your dreams also? I don't really. I, I I don't. Sometimes, sometimes my dreams are are just memories that are a little little twisted. Right. <laughs> you know, somebody comes back from the dead or something and talks to me or something, or or um, just somebody's in something. They're, they're not that vivid, really. I that way. They're just sort of odd imagery. And um, uh huh. No, I've never I've never done that. I never I've never kept a journal either. I keep a diary, of course. A calendar about where to go and what to do, but that's that's about it. I've never been a journal a journal keeper because I, I just uh, I've always tried to take my own ideas and my own feelings and remove them from me uh, and remove them a little bit and turn them into something else. That's why I like uh, fiction a lot because it can it's like you put a mask on, you can you can pretend you're somebody else in another time, or you can pretend you're a different sex, or you can pretend you're a different completely different and I like that idea that, that I've always liked the idea of taking the emotional weight of something and turning it into something else so I, I don't really write much about myself and I know I know a lot of people do but I I just don't I, I just don't now and again I do or there'll be a moment or two but it's yeah not. I agree with that do you find that when you're writing I I tend to if I'm writing by hand into I do keep a journal and if I'm keeping a journal and I'm writing something in a journal, uh, it's not as clear to me as when I'm sitting down at my computer and I'm typing it onto a blank dock, you know? Right. There's some kind of a, the emotions of my hand. I, I decided that I prefer to type them in first. I might have a poem in a journal that uh, I might grab a line or something. Is that similar to what you just said? Yeah, a little bit. I, I usually write longhand, though. I, I do the opposite. I because just to get the utterance out, and then and then I've always been a very slow typist. Before computers, I was a horribly slow typist, even though I wrote a lot of things that were typed on a typewriter. But the typing, and even now with a computer, the typing is is I go slower with it, and it becomes the the second draft or the revision of you know. It's like it's etched in stone in a way when I when I type something out and uh so I, I use the I use the typing as kind of the final form of the it motivates me to get the final draft in or, or to take right. the scribblings that I've done that make no sense and rewrite them and make make them make sense as I type. So uh but I do I do tend to write most poetry you know, in a little notebook or something. But it's a, and uh, ideas for other things I'll put in notebooks and but you, well, why don't you read us something else? Okay, let's see. I've got this piece that I I, I wrote a few years ago, and it was published uh, with a with a, a letterpress by Richard Alcott. He used to live up here, and he um, it's called the Descent of Ahab, and it's based on, of course, Moby Dick. So none of the imagery is is mine. It's all Melville's, but uh, it's sort of my my idea of. Uh, of Ahab and Ahab being reflected on by one of the crewmen. And, and this is a little longer piece. 
Ahab, oh Ahab, what was it like, the big bite that ripped your leg off? The white bite, the teeth of whale, you thought was virgin splash. White whale, white hell, white heat, freezing your soul to your whiskers. Had life a meeting before the chomp, chomp, chomping gave you your hunt? Did your soul search for itself in the arms of women or fish or hardwood ribbed schooners flying their glide in night wind under stars designed to keep your watch? Mad. It was said clearly so you could hear in whispers by your true of gallants. Mad. Where do you lead them? What path to apocalypse in the waning of their simple reasons, these simple sailors, these workmen who toll for you in awe of your megalomania, your strength and power, admiring command. But how far does death go down so deep in you that all natural life plays against its own true instinct? The great whale runs, taunts, and teases. You peer in and peer forward atop the ship, the jaw of your leg bone leading the way, leading the sailors on into your personal expulsion from the sacred planet. Mad? They say it in whispers, but power and passion is their bread's reverie. And you, Ahab, you pay the coins that look like sun, and their palms warm to the glow of the feel of the silver gold doubloon you nailed to the mast as a reward for whoever first spies the whale's fierce, bloody eyes. Captain, my captain, float a blast right now into his scorching eye. You raise your sharp-pronged harpoon, and you rear back to arch the throw, and suddenly, suddenly the dream delivers you awake. A dream, only a fog dream. And you huddle in cold lap sounds of steered waves, your course, your search, your search, your deliverance, yourself, the bone of the great white whale, your balancing prod. The captain was once heard to say, if the sun were to offend me, I would blot it out. Can you imagine? If the sun offends me, I will blot it out. Ahab suffers from a most cunning form of madness, the kind that makes men heroes and heroes gods. But the gods are not totally bound, and their fierceness is born of motives not of this world, not even of this dimension of things. So strange is the wrath of fate, the puzzle that is fitted as destiny's weavings. But this man is no ordinary ego. This man links himself to the greatness of the mountains and the sea. They are his only mirrors, except, of course, except the other, the white creature, the secret sharing partner that guides him on and on, inward, boiling, the icy soul away. But where is the whale? As Ahab squints away the morning mist, where is the elusive beast, the taunting, teasing apparition? Ahab must will it to him. He must conjure it forth. If he is truly one with the sea, if he has truly inherited the mystery of Neptune's power. So Ahab takes his harpoon in hand and squeezes its pointed, sharp blade into his flesh, and rather than slice his flesh away, the blade begins to glow, a golden glow in harmony with the sun above and the lookout coin reward hammered to the mast. The blade glows and Ahab's skin glows hot and sizzling with the obsession of it, his talisman, this link to the whale's flesh from his own, 
the deliverer of death and redemption and hot steel in blood. When the cry came, it was expected for days, for years, for centuries, waiting for this inevitable confrontation for supreme power. There she blows. I see her. I see her. It is the white whale. There. And you point all the meanings of your scrambled life, its torments and fears riding you out to do battle with magic itself, possessing you and leading you off. The chase is on. Ahab standing prone and erect in a small boat, dropped into the sea like a newborn child emerging from the womb. The chase is on. The conjurer has called it forth, and it has answered in the form of a mammoth-sized thing, alive and white, that makes near tidal waves every time it plunges under the water or rises high up in a dive for air. It must come up for air, this mammal, like us, a mammal like us. It needs fresh air. Ahab is the wind, riding his wood boat and his steel prong. The white whale teases, yet avoids nothing in this clash for power. The white whale is the deliverer and the redeemer of man's misspent energy. His domain is all the surfaces of the sea world, all. And men to him are like insect intruders. Their minute egos flail about his steamy waters, but they sting him with their obsessive extinction, death wish. Their gods have granted them metal toys that rub out breath and blood indiscriminately. Ahab the killer. Ahab the wrong child. Ahab comes closer, closer, closer to his prey, and the great white whale allows. And Ahab bulges his chest and eyes forth with red fire, breathing hate and revenge. (coughs) He hurls the harpoon with all his might, and it sails through space between them, a bridge, and it sticks, slicing into the whale flesh, stuck there, bleeding small like a toothpick in hugeness. And the guide rope it is attached to twists into the air above Ahab as the whale dives and the rope surrounds the captain's neck like a noose. And it tightens and pulls him from the boat into the sea, pulls him over and under the waves, and slashes his body against the whale, tied, tying the man to the white by his own guiding weapon. And the great white whale dives under and swims and dives away with its new passenger, its warning cargo, warning of stupidity and arrogance and death wish, and the sea, and the sea, and the sea simply allows. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) That is an epic poem. Thank you. I think Melville would be proud. (laughs) Well, that's nice to hear. (laughs) <laughs> Poor Melville. Poor Melville. Nobody even read his book when it was came out. It they didn't nobody liked it, and then it. I think it was sort of rediscovered when it was after long after his death. But um, what's up with that? That's so typical. It's so typical. Yeah, he had some. He had some fans. I know Hawthorne was a, a big fan of the book, but uh, you know he knew he was doing something special and ahead of its time. Ahead of his time. That's. One of the hard parts of being on the front of the comet, you know, oftentimes you don't get to see the sparks that everyone else sees. Yeah, um, you never know how the world's going to handle anything that you that you create. You know, they'll embrace it or they won't, or publisher will flock to you or they won't. I mean, you just never know. 
Right. I remember, I remember one of the first things I ever, one of the first movies I ever made, there was about a thousand people in the audience, and half of the audience clapped really loudly, and then there was about a third of them there hissed. <laughs> not not half, but about a third, maybe a quarter were hissed. They literally yeah. hissed, or you are, are they metaphorically no, they literally hissed. hissed. It was <laughs> other people were clapping, so it was like they're, you know, the majority clapped, though, but the hissing stays with me. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Was it a, was it because of the stance you took in your film? It was because the ending was ambiguous. Oh, okay. So that's people, a reason to, to get yeah, people's ire. Some people thought the ending was perfect and made complete sense, and other people were kind of shocked by the ending and, you know, it's like right. anything, you know. People, people have all these expectations when they're when they're sitting down or when they're reading, and you know, expectations are always high with with people you never know, and no matter what, well, you know. So. Right, and the other side of it, you know, I know as an audience member, to go see someone's film, it means I'm giving up between twenty minutes or fifteen minutes or five minutes to up to three hours of my time. So you want to walk away from that experience feeling that you used your time wisely, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, this yeah. movie was, was was playing at the beginning. It's 22 minutes, and it was playing before Persona at a Bergman festival. So I figured that hopefully the people that hissed me were at least able to watch more Bergman, but probably something like Persona they probably had a hard time with. So they're, they're probably they in the wrong you. place. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm giving you what you're getting, so get ready for some more. <laughs> yeah, right. This is lightweight compared to what you're about to see. That you pay right. For. So, yeah. how does your poetry show up in your filmmaking? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe in, in some of the, maybe in some of the descriptions, maybe in the, the dialogue. Sometimes the movie stuff mm-hmm. is so, so mathematical, in a way. Except when people talk. Uh, but I, um, I'm not sure. I think I've always been a visual person, and it's, so I always see these things very, very clearly. And when I write poetry, I, I don't always. I'm not always writing visually. I, I like to write philosophically if I can, and that's very pretentious what I'm saying. But I, I still like to use it for those ideas. Uh, whereas I can't use some of those ideas that come to me. I, I that's the only form they can take. I think is poetry. So. So it's almost like the poetry has been impacted by filmmaking, I think, more. I, some of the short films I made are very poetic, and they're called that in reviews. And But I don't know if poetry, per se, affects them. It's just the, the way the cinema seems to work. The cinema can be, you know, very abstract and very beautiful in its own way, particularly pure cinema. You know, short things, avant-garde things can be that way, so... I've done a little of that, and I, I think that's probably a, more of a correlation. Sometimes I've, I'll have a character in a screenplay, I have a character that goes off on some tangent or he says something that's a little off kilter, or he'll, and that that may have an that has an influence, uh, a literary influence. Yeah, I believe we're getting close to the end, and I want to make sure. What are you working on right now? Well, I'm trying to write a couple uh, novellas right now, and I've, uh, I'm trying to write one about Edward Mybridge, who 
was one of the inventors of the of motion pictures. He was a still photographer. And then I'm trying to write a, an original novella that's in three parts and about a young boy in Texas who uh, has a an incident with his stepfather, and then he has to run away, and he joins the Army and finds himself in Vietnam, and then toward the end he goes to college and finds himself helping some people at the University of Texas when uh, Charles Whitman was taking pot shots of everybody from the Texas Tower. So it's kind of an exploration of violence, actually, and how it impacts somebody and how they get through it and also mm. how they use it. And It's about, a, like I say, a boy in Texas, and it's uh, set in the 70s, I guess, early 70s. And um, and then the Mybridge thing is that I'm writing that in, in his voice, like a journal that he keeps. And uh, right now he's about ready to meet Leland Stanford, who's going to ask him to to take photographs of his racehorse to prove that his racehorse, his four feet or four legs are off the ground. And that was what started Mybridge on his exploration of taking images and then linking them together that eventually became motion pictures. And mm. So I'm, I'm diving into those two pieces and, and writing poetry here and there. And, but mostly those novellas I'm trying to complete them. They're taking a long time. And how would listeners find out more about your work or read you online or see some of your films? I don't know. I've got a couple stories. <laughs> a, I've got a couple stories published in a, a Los Angeles website called Hollywood Dementia, and there's two stories there. One about the movies and uh, kind of a about a movie actor, and one is one is about a movie in in Texas, and. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't have a. I don't have a blog, and I don't have a. I don't have. And a there's website. your and your films. It's kind of. It's the type of thing where they're, they're on Vimeo. My films. Yeah. Okay. Can, well, there you go. So your films. Yeah, on I, I think so you can, can write Thomas Roberto in there, and they might. They might pop up. They should. Okay. Two of them are there. Yeah. And the History right. Channel stuff I did. They they don't. That stuff is not on uh, their website. They they. That stuff comes and goes. I did a few things for History Channel right. uh, a few years ago, documentaries for them. Okay, well, I think we're just about out of time. Do you have time for one more very short poem? Yeah. I, this is called, uh, I'll do one that's sentimental here that's about a kid. This is called Little, Little Boy Grown. Whenever he leaves, an emptiness opens in my chest and wind roars through, a chill like a storm, and I can't protect myself from the wide void this loss brings. I've raised him until now. I first saw him in a playpen, still crawling, calling me Tawn. We have been through over ten years of tumult and joy, my boy riding my shoulders as my daughter also did, 20 years before him. These children keep me meaningful to myself. When all the world may turn away from ideas I bring, sometimes reflecting nothing, sometimes wisdom long forgotten by years, states, countries, worlds, long gone but easily remembered, muscle memory of a life long lived, fought, scarred. But he leaves, and his sunlit hair, his devouring smile, his quick wit, out of nowhere inspires life all around him 
as he grows upward. Where, he, where the, as he grows upward, where the clouds await and form clearly. I hope I am there, perhaps in his memory, yesterday when he was here, and I always with him everywhere. Thank you so much, Thomas Roberto. It's been a pleasure talking poetry with you. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. And that was the voice of poet Thomas Roberto, elk poet. You've been listening to Cartwells on the Sky. I'm your host, Blake Moore, right here on KGUA, Wallala. It's been a pleasure spending this last half an hour with you all. Have a beautiful rest of your evening and stay tuned for more fabulous programming right here on KGUA, FM, Wallala. Oh, you can't.